0: The work of Merle and Phyllis Good. The magazine highlighted Mennonite culture and its interaction with the broader society. My church, the only Mennonite church within 100 miles, had lots of dress and haircut and don't go to movie rules. And along comes the festival quarterly with a regular column telling us which movies were the good ones. The magazine nudged me in the direction of a Mennonite college. Not because of Anabaptist theology, I had those basics down fairly well, but because I wanted to explore Mennonite culture. I've got a couple of college, copies of the Mennonite of, of the festival quarterly here. One I found when I cleaned out my parents' house, and the other one we kept because Phyllis did a nice write-up on Marlisa and her work in visual aids and worship in one of their later issues. This morning, we're going to explore that culture as openly as we can. What does it mean that whenever anyone steps into our church, they're not finding naked Anabaptists, as Stuart Murray uh, calls a stripped-down Anabaptist theology, but they're finding a group of Anabaptists with all their cultural clothes on. We are a Mennonite church here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania an area that for about three centuries has had a lot of Mennonites in it. Now this may not be new to many of us but I believe that naming the fact that traditional Mennonite churches have a strong ethnic component that often is a dominant cultures culture in churches like ours, naming it helps us work to be as open as possible to everyone. Here here we have layers of practice and practices and understandings that some of us instinctively understand and makes us comfortable. But those same layers can be off-putting for those coming from outside our European Mennonite traditions. Now we do have some astute observers of Mennonite culture and life here in our church. Uh, Note this book by Merle, Kate and Rebecca Good called Menno Light as in L-I-T-E, or this book, The Muppy Manual, written by Emerson Lesher, the father of Ben Lesher, who I think when he wrote this book was, a, was attending here, was a member of our church. Um, you remember the Young Urban Professional label? This is the Mennonite, Young Mennonite Urban Professional Manual. Uh, and I have to say, it is an embarrassingly accurate description of the life Marlisa and I have. this talk this morning is simultaneously a confession and a celebration, pointing out a tension that I am not sure how to handle. So I invite all of you to grapple with it with me. I hope we can laugh together because there is no better way to discover a culture than to laugh at it, than to make jokes about it, excuse me, there is no better way to discover one's own culture than to make jokes about it. And we might even cry together as we come to terms terms with this strong sense of ethnicity in a church that wants to welcome everyone. By the way, how many Mennonites does it take to change a light bulb? Change? (laughs) The dictionary definition of culture that applies to us this morning says that culture is the habits, beliefs, and traditions of a certain people. Cultures are the rules that people live by, the things unspoken that we just know, the layers of history that ground our understanding of our lives. Here's an example of cultural rules. A few weeks ago, uh, some of us went to Bernardo's birthday party. Most of us arrived around 3.30, the time that was on the invitation. But Bernardo was Somewhat surprised because he wasn't really expecting us until, say, 4 30, which is completely reasonable in the world that he grew up in. He just knows that people don't arrive at a birthday party on the invitation time. The cultural clothes that we wear here in our church fit on some of us so comfortably that we aren't even, that we're often not even aware that we have them. In this new book, Menno Nightcaps, which I recommend because it's filled, ver- it's filled with a very readable, pretty accurate and complete account of Anabaptist history, practice and theology. And of course, a lot of cocktail recipes. The subtitle of this book is Cocktails Inspired by that Odd Ethno-Religious Group You Keep Mistaking for Amish, Quakers or Mormons. <laughs> so let's look at the ethno part of this title. If you give me someone's last name, I can tell you with quite a bit of certainty if that person is either a Mennonite or has Mennonite roots, and whether they came originally from the Switzerland area a long time ago, and whether they're they're likely to be associated with with what we used to call the old Mennonite church, and that they probably have family in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Ohio, or Indiana. Or, if their ancestors came from the Netherlands area, immigrated to North America via Russia and are likely to be associated with the now defunct General Conference Church. And they probably have family in Kansas or Central Canada. The satirical blog, the Mennonite version of The Onion, called The Daily Bonnet, has compiled a list of common Mennonite names. On the Swiss Mennonite list is number two, Yoder, number 18 is Bontrager, that's me, on the Russian Mennonite list, Friesen is number one, Epp has an honorable mention. If your name is on the Russian Mennonite list, I doubt that you knew what shoe fly pie was when you were growing up because shoe fly pie is not a thing in the category of Russian Mennonite foods. Now, knowing all this background information makes the Mennonite world very comfortable for me. But I can see how my insider knowledge might make new new Mennonites feel like outsiders. Another joke. How do you send a Mennonite couple into an existential crisis? Well, you offer them free dance lessons. (laughs) The stereotypical Mennonite is frugal to a fault. Our simple lifestyle aspiration can sometimes be plain old stinginess you know as a line on the back of metal light says this book will tell you how to be tight and appear conscientious <laughs> and traditionally Mennonites don't dance although that taboo appears to have been firmly debunked but when my middle school classmates practice square dancing during our phys ed classes I carried a note from my parents asking that I please be excused from dance lessons. I watched the dance classes from the gym bleachers, and to this day I'm a lousy dancer. (laughs) Exactly. The Daily Bonnet offered this COVID-era headline, Mennonite church allows dancing now that everyone has to keep six feet apart. Now let's switch gears a minute and take a look at our scripture readings for today. By the time of Jesus, the Jewish people had been developing their culture, their rules to live by for several thousand years. It wasn't just that the Pharisees were a bunch of stuck-up hypocrites. They were living like the Jewish people had been living for a long, long time. And then Jesus comes along and wants to throw those rules away. Jesus insists whatever goes into a person from the outside can't hurt. But if we look at it from the Pharisees' perspective, we can see how hard it might be to accept Jesus' words. It wasn't going to be easy to just discard practices that were a thousand years old. Plus, they were second-class citizens in an occupied territory. If they wanted to survive as a people, they needed to hunker down and protect their way of life. I'm not sure why Mennonites developed a denomination with such a strong, ethnic character, but I'm going to speculate that there were some similar dynamics. In the first sermon in this series Elisa described Christendom, that period of a little over a thousand years when the church and political governments were joined at the hip. Everyone who was born inside Christian jurisdictions was baptized as soon as possible and was a Christian forever after. In the early 1500s, reformers like Martin Luther King came along, but they didn't abolish Christendom, they divided it up. The Anabaptists, on the other hand, acted as if Christendom didn't even exist. They thought that following Jesus should be more a conscious decision than a function of where you were born. And naturally, this was a threat to, to the Christendom establishment. European churches and governments came down hard on Anabaptists. This Big book here represents uh, this book here, Martyr's Mirror, contains hundreds of accounts of, Anabapt- of, of Anabaptists being martyred. It represents an important legacy of my understanding of Anabaptism. Martyred Anabaptists is one of the layers in the roots of Mennonite Anabaptists. As persecution went on for more than hundred years, Anabaptists gathered their families around them and immigrated to the New World where they built walls around themselves. Not physical walls, but cultural walls. And they were able to maintain a strong community of believers, one of the Anabaptist essentials that we'll be looking, looking at more thoroughly next week. A strong sense of community enabled its members to live rightly. For example, it gave countless young men the courage to declare themselves conscientious objectors to war, even as some were put in prison for it. It spurred Mennonites to live their whole lives with integrity. But the flip side of the Mennonite community ideal is that somewhere we developed an idea that we can only share communion if we both agree on exactly the same rules to live by. Well. I know where we got the idea. Paul wrote that we shouldn't associate with brothers who were caught sinning. The question for me is, why did we choose to emphasize that part of it, rather than emphasizing Jesus' example of eating with everyone anytime, sinners or no? Oftentimes this Mennonite quest for an untainted community meant things like watching the style of your dress or the color of your car or if you can have a TV or whether a woman can preach. Being a pure church is hard because if I don't like the rules here I need to go find another church someplace or worse if you're not following the rules that I think are important I will expel you from my fellowship. By the way, note these busts that Roland uh, Roland Yoder made uh, of of people in traditional Mennonite dress. I like them because they celebrate the clothes that I grew up with. So here's another story. Once there was a Mennonite couple who scrimped and saved until they finally had enough money for a cruise. Unfortunately, out on the high seas, there was a storm, the ship sank, and the two Mennonites were washed up on a, des- on a deserted island, They're o- the only survivors. They lived there for a while, several months or more, until finally another ship discovered them. And when the kip- ship's captain came ashore, she found three little huts. And the couple proudly showed them the first hut, it was their house, and then it went on to show them the second hut, it was their church. And they, sh- they were showing them off, and finally the captains asked, what's the third hut? Oh, that said the husband sadly and with a little disgust in his voice that's the church we used to go to. (laughs) There have been a lot of splits in the Mennonite Church if I understand correctly Neffsville Mennonite Church started because a group of people from East Chestnut Street wanted to have TVs in our church wasn't ready for that, so they left and started Nestville Mennonite. Understanding our penchant for splitting up is another of the layers that make up our understanding of our church. Distinctive clothing and languages may seem odd, but I can understand it. One effect of dressing differently is a well-defined community. The church group of my growing up years, for example, was as close a community as I remember anywhere. We supported each other. We challenged each other to follow Jesus in all aspects of our lives. And that was easier in part because we looked so different. We had to pull together. Trying to be pure also meant that we Mennonites got good at hiding things. We don't want just everyone to see what we do. We don't want just everyone to see if we might be doing things that are not acceptable. I remember one evening when I was a boy waiting for my grandparents to arrive and it was a big deal because they lived 800 miles away. And to pass the time until they got there we children were playing a game of cards, probably hearts or something like that. And then their car drove drove in the driveway and in a slight panic we swooshed up the cards into a pile and threw them into a drawer as quickly as we could because we didn't want them to see us playing cards. Another daily bonnet. COVID-era post said that in the Mennonite communities of southern Manitoba, alcohol sales were up during COVID because now that everyone had to wear masks in stores, no one could recognize who was going in and out of the liquor store. (laughs) I can't talk about Mennonite culture without talking about singing. Singing is such a big part of my church experience. I don't know how or why Mennonites developed our penchant for four-part singing. For some reason, we used to ban instruments from our churches. They were not allowed in my boyhood church, but for whatever reason, oh my, can we sing. Everywhere I've worshipped in U.S. Mennonite churches, singing in harmony has been part of the experience. And the hymn that Mennonites affectionately know as 606 is a good example of Mennonite, is, the, is maybe the prime example of Mennonite music. Mennonites love that song. It was almost a betrayal when it got moved to a different number two hymnals ago. So we defiantly stuck with calling it 606. Mennonite groups have shown off that song in all kinds of strange places, caves, cathedrals, pop-up concerts, pretty much in direct contradiction of our reputation for humility. (laughs) Now here's the confession part. When we charted out this series of worship services on Anabaptism, we of course scheduled Todd to introduce the series. But then Todd had to be away and it fell to Elisa to introduce it. My confession is that I had misgivings. I didn't say anything, of course. But I know that I know the thoughts that cross my mind. After all, Elisa, your name is Parmer, not Yoder or Friesen. And I'd be surprised if you didn't feel a little bit of that vibe, a little intimidated, a little self-conscious about introducing this theme to a bunch of people who can trace their Mennonite families back several centuries. But Elisa, you nailed it. It was as Anabaptist a sermon as we could get. And it was as if God was saying to me and to anyone else that has similar thoughts, just as Jesus said to the Pharisees, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. Now, I'm not here this morning to say that we should ditch this Mennonite culture. No, I hope a good share of what we're doing today is celebration. Mennonite culture is as significant as any culture anywhere. But as we saw from the way Jesus and Paul interacted with their culture, my culture, our culture here at East Chestnut Street is not sacred. But let's sing in four-part harmony. Let's sing at the top of our lungs. And let's hold incredible potlucks and have great second-hour discussion. But let's also hold our culture very lightly. Fully aware that a strong culture, especially one that has such a robust ethnic component as ours, a strong culture leans toward being a closed culture. And I invite us all to live in this tension between a traditional Mennonite culture and one that is extravagantly open to all. Let's work to make explicit the underlying layers of of our culture. Because when they're hidden unconsciously, they're known to some. And they're alienating to others. East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church has deep roots in a people who, in many ways, aided by their dress and customs, built a strong but relatively closed community that was able to to resist calls to go to war, that helped its members use fewer of the earth's resources, that developed an ethos for serving others, especially the powerless. The question for us to continually grapple with is how do we be a community that brings all of us together? Those with Mennonite surnames and those coming from other cultures, how do we bring us together into a community that that enables us to follow Jesus radically and openly in all aspects of our lives?